What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Let us organize a demonstration. We're not in Trinidad now, boy. This is Notting Hill. This is Notting Hill. This place, the mangrove, it is Notting Hill. Whether you can recognize so or not, this is the front line. Malachi Kirby and Sean Parks in what just might be the movie event of 2020. Except, like so much else this year, it's not happening on a movie screen. That's a scene from Mangrove, the first in a five-part series of films directed by Steve McQueen for the BBC. All five parts, collectively called Small Acts, are currently available here in the States on Prime Video. This week, McQueen's Small Acts will definitely get some love as we share our favorite performances and more from the 2020 movie year. That and more. But is it film or TV, Adam? Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. Josh, it's been a movie year like no other, of course, but it's ending just like it always does with us mad dashing to watch everything we possibly can. Yeah, I mean, I've entered more screening link passwords and two-factor authentications. I mean, Uh I I should be able to hack into the Pentagon at this point, Adam. (laughs) Well, now we get to share the fruits of all that dashing and hacking. We kick off what will end up being about a month of celebrating the best of 2020. We're going to share our favorite performances and more of the year. And then over the next two weeks, we're going to count down our top 10 films of 2020. And then when we get into our first proper show in the new year, we're going to do what's become an annual staple, whether we're live in front of an audience or not, Josh, our year end rap party. When we get into the nitty gritty of the movie year, we talk about our favorite scenes, our favorite moments, the stuff that made us laugh, that made us cry and made us really wish we were sharing the experience with a theater full of people. Yeah, indeed. And we're going to kick things off here with some categories that have been given to us, traditional categories, as members of the Chicago Film Critics Association. First round of ballots, our individual nominations, Adam, are due this week, tomorrow, as of when we're recording this. So we're going to work our way through them. I'm sure yours is pretty much set. Mine is, but always good to to bounce those nominations off of each other, maybe Uh, make a few bids for one of us to consider another person Mm -hmm. that we feel strongly about. Um, So yeah, this should be fun going through these ballots. Yeah, I'd say maybe 75 to 80% set. That's kind of the fun of this and the new approach we're taking. We realized last year that we would typically talk about these categories after the winners had been announced. So every member of the Chicago Film Critics Association goes through two rounds of voting, the winners come out, and then we would come on the show and share those winners and say, well, here's who we voted for, or this was our short list of nominees. And we thought, why not actually just kind of bake this into the show itself? It gives us a chance to highlight these performances that we might not otherwise get to and other categories as well. And then I like it, Josh, because you never know. You might just sway me one way or another, or maybe I overlooked someone completely, forgot they were even on the ballot. And now I've got a little bit of a check and balance before I actually have to hit submit on the first round. Yeah, we'll see if that happens. Might go either way. Yeah, I do want to give our listeners a little sense of the timeline. Again, a little confusing when we're taping this at a certain point and then voting happens. And then by the time you hear this, the winners very likely will be announced. So that timeline is this. Josh mentioned it. 
as of this taping, we have about 24 hours to finalize our picks. Then by the time you guys hear this starting on Friday, December 18th, the nominees will be announced and we'll be having to vote on those finalists five in each category. There's 19 categories total. We're only going to focus on eight of them here. And then we only have about 24 hours after that to conclude our voting because on Monday, December 21st, the winners will be announced. So all I'm asking everyone to take away from that is depending on when you listen to this, you can probably go to chicagofilmcritics.org or go to the show notes at filmspotting.net and see how the results actually came out. And I guess compare them against how we voted here or how we intend to vote, Josh, as we'll explain over the course of this episode. Probably worth mentioning, too, that we are going to work our way through some of those other categories we don't get to in show proper and record that for film spotting family members on Patreon. So that's right. I think that's including categories like um, foreign language film, documentary, I think we'll cover Mm -hmm. and a couple of those. I'm not sure if between these two recordings we'll hit all 19, but we'll hit most of them. So, yeah, the big ones here and then for film spotting family members on Patreon, we'll get to some of those other categories that we're voting for as well. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to start with some acting categories, the supporting male and supporting female performers. Josh, we'll go ahead and start with the male. And this was one of the weaker categories for me. Same with supporting female performances, actually, in terms of the overall number of names in the mix. But I'd say in both cases, especially here with the men, it's very top heavy. So how did your assessment go? Yeah, I think that's fair. I would say there were a couple who jumped out at me right away and then filling out. There wasn't a lot of um, difference between the latter end of my top six here who I'm considering at this point. So someone's going to have to go. We already heard from maybe the lead in this category for me, and that's Malachi Kirby from Mangrove plays a Black Panther member, Darkus Howe, there in 1960s England, who's kind of the motivator, uh, raises the consciousness of another character um, who we just heard, Frank Critchlow, uh, in that clip as well at the top of the show. So such great acting around the board in Mangrove, and Malachi Kirby is definitely in the supporting actor category for me. Then others I'll throw out here quickly, Michael Stuhlbarg from Sure. The Shirley Jackson, not quite biopic, um, but film about the novelist. Paul Racy, who has a supporting part in Sound of Metal. Adam, you were early on Sound of Metal and are a huge fan of it. I just recently caught up with it. And um, he is, I hope we can talk a little bit more about him. I'm guessing he's going to be on your short list. (laughs) Maybe I'll save that conversation for when you you get to him. Um, So that's three I've mentioned. Here's one. I'm going to take the flip side of a coin. I think I'm expecting from you as well. You're a big fan of John Magaro as Cookie in First Cow. I'm going with Orion Lee, I'm pretty sure, here mm-hmm. in the supporting actor category. Um, this uh, this global drifter, this Chinese immigrant who Cookie teams up with to sell oily cakes. I was just really drawn to the philosophical perspective he brought to their daily work and also the way he would just think about history. He was a thinker, this character, um, and he was a serene thinker. I always think about that line. He says, I believe different things in different places when he's reflecting on his travels um, and his plan. You know, his business plan for their oily cakes, it's very practical, but the performance also makes it feel existential, I think. We have to take what we can when the taking is good. Seems dangerous. So is anything worth doing? 
Orion Lee there um, in First Cow. And then I had Adam at the back end. Here's where I might need your help. Mm -hmm. If you did, I I know I was going to put you through the grinder here um, because I had mentioned Possessor, (laughs) the the Brandon Cronenberg Uh film uh, that I've termed extreme cinema started showing up for me more and more as I did this ballot. And there's a performance there by Christopher Abbott, sort of the victim to the main character's body snatching assassin. So he gets possessed in this crazy film. Um, He has to act like his main character. He has to act like his main character when he's possessed by the other character. And then he has to act like his character when he's fighting for control over his own body. The trick to this performance by Christopher Abbott is you always know what mode he's in. He's he's that good. Um, mm-hmm. And then lastly, I don't know if um, – can you get a nomination if you're only in one scene? Because when I think about The Assistant, um, which is uh, a Golden Brick nominee – uh, Matthew McFadden appears there I, as the. I wondered if you'd go there. Yeah, yeah the HR guy who has this yep. really crushing meeting um, with the main character in Kitty Green's dramatization of what it's like working under a Harvey Weinstein-like studio executive. I mean, that scene is so crucial to the film. He's so good in it, but I think he's probably going to be the odd man out for me just because it was only one scene. So that's where mm-hmm. I'm at right now. Well, I think you're in a good spot. I still have not seen Possessor, though. It is a golden brick shortlister, and I plan to see it before we actually have to submit our vote. So you never know. I might come around and include Christopher Abbott. I wasn't as big on Shirley as you or most of the critical world was, so I really overlooked Stuhlbarg there, even though when is Michael Stuhlbarg ever not good. A couple of the other names that I considered, I'm going to go opposite of you, Josh. I'm going to start kind of with the ones who are kind of in the mix, the ones who are definitely in the mix, and then we'll get to the choices. And we actually have three overlaps here. I did think about Robert Pattinson in a movie I was just ho-hum on, The Devil All the Time, and then he shows up in Tenet, and he couldn't be more different in either role. And he's just an actor I look forward to seeing all the time on screen. I know we're going to get to more small act stuff. Michael Ward, from Lover's Rock, one of the main characters there. It's truly an ensemble piece, but of course we have kind of two dancers, two lovers that we do focus on. I did like Mark Rylance a lot in Trial of the Chicago 7, and as you know, I was really big on Bill Murray in Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks, a supporting turn there. Orion Lee, though, he made my list here. Yes, there's going to be a little bit more talk about John Majaro, but I really like him as King Lou. I've got Malachi Kirby as Darkus from Mangrove in consideration as well. One name that you didn't mention, and I don't know if you've had a chance to see the movie yet, but Promising Young Woman starring Carrie Mulligan, mm-hmm. a very good Carrie Mulligan. She might come up again later. It's a script by Emerald Fennel, who also directs. And Bo Burnham, the comic and the writer-director of Eighth Grade, plays a really large supporting role here as the Mulligan character's boyfriend, who she is initially very resistant of. And with his charm and his sense of humor and his intelligence, he really just breaks her down. And Bo Burnham, I think, is wonderful here. There's really a playfulness to it and almost a screwball comedy-esque banter that makes it really fun whenever they're on screen together. So Bo Burnham is one that I am maybe a little bit surprised that he showed up here at this point, but I'm going to put him in contention. Okay. Yeah. I need to catch that yet. So, so maybe, um, if I can squeeze that in before voting, I'll give him some consideration. The, the Pattinson one is really interesting because that 
thinking back on Tenet, and we're starting to see more reviews now that it's available digitally, right? Rolling out. Um, so it's kind of been on my mind. He might have been my favorite thing about Tenet. Uh, he was just so mm-hmm. light and having a lot of fun with with uh, James Bond sort of staples and kind of the opposite of what I felt everything else about the film was, which was just mm-hmm. so heavy and chore-like. So that's a tricky one, too, where it's like, okay, he's the best thing about the film. I think he's really good, but you award yeah. that on a ballot, you know? Right. No, I get it. So in terms of the top five right now, Lee, Burnham, Malachi, Kirby, and then for me, Josh, it really is all about the two at the top. They're competing for my number one vote for the most points we can award here in a category. And you mentioned him. It's Paul Racy from Sound of Metal. Our friend Michael Phillips from the Tribune, who will be here as part of our top 10 films of 2020, shows he wrote an article about Paul Racy in the Trib because he actually grew up with three brothers and sisters in Humboldt Park here in Chicagoland. And later he was in Oak Lawn. He was the hearing son of deaf parents. And According to the article, Racy's agent saw the audition notice for Sound of Metal and just thought, okay, this is serendipity. We've got a guy who has a background dealing with addiction, obviously knows sign language inside and out, has spoken that language since he was a young boy, and also he's a musician. And even though I don't think we see that applied in the movie from his character, it fits the material Sound of Metal, obviously, very well. And so I want to share this real quick because... According to Michael's article, the agent called the film's production team and said, did you get the tape? And they said, yes, but we're going for a name, Robert Duvall, maybe. And the agent pleaded, just watch the tape. And they said, sure, if we can find it. And then they found it. They watched it. They loved it. And Racy obviously got the part. And this is what Racy says about the process and getting cast. He says, Darius and his co-writer brother Abraham, this is Darius and Abraham Martyr, wrote such beautiful dialogue. I just felt free to be real, Racy says now. No acting required. I mean, I'm a former addict. I'm also an interpreter. Riz is a great actor. That's Riz Ahmed. And we were able to be vulnerable with each other. Darius told me, no acting allowed. You can't teach that really. 20, 30 years ago, would I have been able to pull off the same scenes like that? No. And... After reading that, all I can think about is someone like Robert Duvall in that role. And look, Robert Duvall is an amazing actor. It's very possible that whoever ended up in that role, just due to the writing and due to the direction and the type of character it is, not inspirational so much as just essential, you know, an anchor for that that main character. It's possible they'd be on this list, too. But there is absolutely a subtlety and an authenticity, an obstinance on Racy's part, to just be who he is and nothing more, because that's what Ruben's character needs. That's what the movie needs. There is something fundamentally lived in about his performance that just feels so right. And no, it doesn't feel acted at all. All I ask is if and when you cannot just sit, you turn yourself to the pen and paper that I'm going to supply for you. And I want you to Right. Doesn't matter what you write, how you write, whether it's spelled correctly, or if it's just a big mess. I don't care. No one will read it, okay? But I want you to keep writing continuously, without stopping, until you feel like you can sit again. 
Yeah, so that background speaks to the authenticity of the performance you're talking about. And this guy, Joe, you're watching it thinking, he's got to exist in real life, right? There's just no Mm -hmm. way they didn't just find this guy. And I think it's interesting um, in the context of a couple of films this year that have employed non-professional actors. Um, Most recently, we touched on this lightly with Nomadland, the Chloe Zhao film that Francis McDormand stars in. And I was thinking about... Uh, um, an actor in Nomadland, Bob. I think his name is Bob. He's kind of like the RV guru um, who Mm -hmm. runs this camp where these nomads meet and he has tips on how to do this, but he also has this philosophical approach to living this sort of life. Um, And clearly Bob is, that's a real guy and he's playing, you know, a variation Mm -hmm. on who he is. And I think he's good in Nomadland. I mean, he's, he definitely has this sort of allure. You can see why people would gather around him. Right. Um, but Paul Racy in Sound of Metal is capturing someone like that in a performance. And, and I, I, I don't mm-hmm. have the words to exactly nail the distinction between what those— I think you've said it well. Th- 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 there's just a difference there. And it's kind of like yeah. you have to see someone else who is a professional doing it, creating someone who feels so authentic to kind of hold up against that non-professional performance, which is interesting of its own, to realize— um, what racy, what someone like racy is bringing to the screen, which is, which is impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And now we go from that performance to my other big contender here for best supporting actor of 2020, Leslie Odom Jr. In one night in Miami Hmm. and playing a character whose life mirrors yours in many ways is the only thing that maybe racy and Odom Jr. have in common here as we talk about this category. But when you're playing Sam Cooke, as he is, and you're mostly for the running time of this film confined to a room with actors portraying Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Cassius Clay, really almost literally on the eve of becoming Muhammad Ali, it's it's going to take some acting <laughs> opposite of what, what Racy is doing in Sound of Metal. It's going to take some charisma, some gravitas, and some stature. And I use that word specifically, Josh, because it's only really obvious to me in a scene where they're all on the hotel rooftop together. And there's a couple of shots where you just can't avoid noticing it. But not only are Malcolm Brown and Ali larger than life in their spirit and their personality, they're all decently sized men. I mean, I'm going to do the tail of the tape here. I did not look up how tall those three figures were or are in real life, but the actors playing them. Yeah. <laughs> It really stands out. <laughs> yeah, Eli Gorey as Ali and Aldous Hodges, Jim Brown. According to Google, anyway, they're only 6'1", 6'2", each. And Sam Cooke, according to Google, was 5'10". But Leslie Odom Jr. is all of about 5'7". Yeah, it looks like and it. So that makes them look like they're seven feet tall. And he goes toe-to-toe with all those actors. And I think emotionally and intellectually is is arguably kind of the fulcrum of that movie. You can make a case for Malcolm X too. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to lead performer. But I was really stunned by the performance. And I actually slacked our producer, Sam, after I saw the movie. And I said, you know, if it wasn't for Hamilton and all the acclaim Leslie Odom Jr. already got in that breakout role, really for most of the world as Aaron Burr, I think this would be seen as that breakout role where he'd be up for every award and everybody was going to be talking about him when people finally do see One Night in Miami, which I think is scheduled to come out on Christmas Day. And 
Then just over the past few days, Josh, I've seen that actually he's on a lot of the shortlist as one of the front runners for Best Supporting Actor. So it seems some people anyway are seeing the magic in this performance as Sam Cooke. And I honestly just thought he'd get overlooked. I thought it would be forgotten, partly as I said, and it's really kind of naive on my part, but I thought maybe people would be like, oh, we're over Leslie Odom Jr. Instead, I think he's got a real shot of being one of those rare performers who after this year's Oscars could have could have the O, he's already got the T, and he's got the G, he's got the Grammy for Hamilton. All he needs is the Emmy, and he'll have the EGOT. That's how good I think he is as Sam Cooke. I do think that he and Kingsley Benadire as Malcolm X uh, stand out Mm -hmm. in One Night in Miami. And I think these are all good performances, but they're very high degree of difficulty performances uh, because not Mm -hmm. only are they each playing an iconic person that we all, you know, if not from news footage from the movies themselves previously have some we think we know you know, how these men carry themselves. So that's one challenge. Um, This is a play adaptation and you can tell that. Um, I think as director, Regina King uh, does some interesting things to shake that up. Um, The -hmm. screenplay by Kemp Powers based on his play. And so there's some constrictions because of that, that the actors are facing as well. And I do think Odom Jr. as Cook, and as I said, Benedict as Malcolm X, they're the ones who, who kind of, are able to move beyond sort of being a little bit more famous characters as talking points, which I think yes. some of the other that kind of trips up uh, the others. But these two, and we get hmm. to know we get to know a little bit more about those two. We get to see scenes of them, more scenes of them outside of the hotel room. I think, which helps. And if you're right, right. in in ter- terms of this being you know appealing for awards, you know the the real awards people, it's because. Odom Jr. gets a great music moment. He has a couple music moments, well, but there's one maybe we'll save and probably talk about when we get to our rap party, <laughs> yeah. and we'll we'll we see will. if we're both thinking of the same one. But yeah, that's it'll come up for sure. That's the scene that's going to snag him an award, mm-hmm. and in my opinion, would be well deserved. Let's move on then to best supporting female performance. I've got maybe five names that I'm kind of considering for a fifth spot. I'm not really locked in. And one thing I'll say about this too, so people know with the voting, you don't have to nominate all five people. And in fact, as you get a little more through the voting process, sometimes we do make strategic decisions to only vote for one person. Maybe there's, there's finalists, but you want to make sure that that one that you think is maybe a dark horse and maybe isn't going to be the majority choice. You don't want to give points to one of those films, even though you like it a lot, you want to give points to that film and that film only. So I'm still considering my strategy here a little bit. I really like Mia Goth in Emma. I like Amara Jai St. Oban in Lover's Rock, the counterpart to Michael Ward, who I mentioned. 
And Kiki Lane, I think, is really good in the Netflix movie The Old Guard. Talia Ryder, the supporting performance to Sidney Flanagan in Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, is really good. I don't have a real standout there. The four that emerged to me as the most likely to get my vote were Olivia Cook, who plays Ruben's girlfriend. She kind of disappears for a good chunk of the movie, but the work she does at the beginning as we get to know those bandmates and those two people in a really strong, it seems, committed relationship with each other. And then as Ruben has to get help for his hearing issues, she disappears from his life, at least physically. And then we do see her again at the end of the film. But I think it's a really good performance as well. I like Letitia Wright a lot in Mangrove. She's one of the protesters and activists who ends up defending herself in a movie that's based on a real-life trial. But they're just behind for me, Josh, these two. Margot Martindale from Blow the Man Down and Amanda Seyfried from Mank. And I was thinking about what makes Seyfried's portrayal of Marion Davies in that David Fincher film so special. And I realized that the words I was coming up with largely applied to Martindale's Enid Nora Devlin as well, which is surprising because one is, you know, Marion Davies, this Hollywood starlet, and the other one is the madam of a brothel in some no-name coastal main town. But they're both probably the richest women they each know, right? And they're maybe both feared more than actually respected and, and kind of tolerated, but actually looked down on by the people in their orbits for various reasons, but then they each have this kind of sophisticated vulgarity, or maybe it's a vulgar sophistication. They just know exactly who they are. And for me, both movies get a little more unpredictable, a little more dangerous. It's a little bit more of a high wire act when those two are on screen. You know why I'm here? The sad truth is I'm disappointed in you girls. You thought you could hustle me. Mrs. Devlin, But because of your mother, I'm giving you a second chance to make this right. You're going to bring me back what you stole. And I'll return that fancy knife of yours. It comes down to Martindale and Seyfried for me. What about you? Yeah, we've both had Margot Martindale penciled in, I think, since we saw Below the Man Down a while back. So she's definitely on there for me, as is Seyfried. Um, highlight of Mank for me. Maybe my favorite thing about it. I just think she's really good. I'm glad you mentioned Mia Goth because I had her on a list somewhere. So, somewhere how she didn't make it to my mega document of possibilities, Adam. Um, but she is fantastic in Emma. So I'm going to throw her back in the mix as well. Let's see here. Uh, Talia Ryder, I was considering from Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, a performance that I think, you know, um, I was so blown away by Sidney Flanagan in the lead. I, I probably didn't give her enough credit, but she is in almost mm -hmm. every scene with Flanagan. Uh, she's playing literally a supporting character and is and is crucial, I think, to the yeah. movie's neorealist sensibility. Um, so she is on my list. Let's see here. Going through, did you mention from Lover's Rock, was it Amara J. St. Aubin? who you mentioned. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Definitely thinking, you know, she's sort of the audience, audience surrogate, I think, um, when it comes to lovers rock, not the main character, yeah. but if you had to identify one, maybe it'd be her. And, um, without giving traditionally narrative moments, I think she manages yeah. to carry that weight 
that that the character has. I think that's a really astute point because she is kind of an outsider and the narrative or the story doesn't give us a whole lot of details. But you get the sense that a lot of the other women in the room are kind of looking at her like, who is she and who does she think she is? Yeah, a little bit. You know? Yep. Yep. And then here, uh, the two others I would throw on there that you didn't mention, um, Minari, a small film coming out, I think not until February. Um, There is a, there's kind of a lead and a co-lead, a married couple here. Yuri Han plays the wife to Stephen Yun's husband, a young Korean couple who moves to Arkansas in the, in the 1980s with their young son to start a family farm. And Yuri Han as Monica, the wife, she's, there is a hospital visit. Their son is ailing um, from mm-hmm. a weak heart. So late in the film, they take him to the hospital and both actors get a moment there that solidified me wanting to put them on this list. For Monica, it's when she gets good news, I'll just say. And mm-hmm. she can only express this stunned sort of relief, this wealth of repressed emotion. Um, you can see see her, even with the good news, still trying to tamp it down. Until she finally manages just a very sort of like even, yes, I'm happy. It's like she has to verbalize it before she Mm -hmm. can herself believe it. It's an amazing moment. Um, And so that's Yuri Han. And then the last one I'll mention here is from Relic, the horror film that um, I'm just really high on. The woman who plays Edna, the mother at the center of this film, aging mother suffering from memory loss, is Robin Nevin. And it's a crucial role because she's supposed to be, um, as things get stranger and stranger for the adult daughter and the granddaughter who come to care for her, she's both scary, I guess, in a way that kind of makes more sense if you actually see it. Um, But yet she's also a very obviously sympathetic figure for what's happening to her. So the film is asking her to do two things at once, to be a figure of fright and also a figure of compassion. And Robin Nevin pulls it off. So so that's where I'm at. But yeah, mentioning Mia Goth again, I'm going to have to throw these back into into the mix and see where I land. See, this process has already paid off, Josh. There you go. Two categories in. I do want to mention that I did have Yuri Han's name from Minari just below Talia Ryder. So definitely one I'm considering. And I know I don't have the name in front of me. I apologize. But the actress who plays the grandmother in that movie seems to be the one who is getting a lot more buzz. But I'm with you. I think the Yuri Han performance is the one that's really the standout in that film. So we're going to table acting for a little bit. We'll come back in the next segment and finish out with the lead performers. Get into some of the technical categories, I suppose, Josh, editing and cinematography. We'll start with the editors. Who are you considering? Yeah, this is one of my favorite categories, I have to say. And it's one that, you know, I keep better notes on throughout the year than others, just because when a film is edited so deftly or there's a moment that really jumps out at you and you can see the hands at work. Um, it's just thrilling. Mm-hmm. And you see a ton of that in Lover's Rock, the second installment in Steve McQueen's Small Axe Anthology. I don't think we've we've really talked about ba- the basic plot, if there is one here, but it's, it's a house party. The whole entire film is mm-hmm. essentially, there's a prologue and epilogue, I guess, but essentially at this house party. Um, and they're among the many beautifully edited moments is this early one where a series of men's hands kind of reach and and gently guide women by the elbow onto the dance floor. Like this, these gestures of invitation and true to what is an ensemble movie, um, we don't necessarily need to know who it is. 
Um, it's not just one couple. It's a series of couples as they all go out of the dance floor. It's just beautiful. The, the editing there done by McQueen and Chris Dickens. Um, I think this one probably everyone's going to have on their list, Time, the documentary um, that is also a Golden Brick nominee, Adam. Gabriel Rhodes edited alongside the director, Garrett Bradley, there. And they've just weaved together footage from these first-person videos of Fox Rich that she made over the years while her husband is in prison. She's trying to get his sentence reduced. They weave those together with these gorgeously crisp black-and-white sequences filmed in the present day. And this movie is all about jumping around in time, and it just does it so effortlessly that it has to be consider- in consideration for this category. I'll quickly go through a couple others here. Surely, um, you know, the Josephine Decker film we talked about, um, I think that David Barker is the editor here. In Madeline's Madeline, Decker's earlier film, there was a lot of aesthetic disorientation that didn't always work for me. Here, it does work a little bit better. I think that's partly because this is a narrative film. This is more of a traditional narrative film, but I think it's also due to the organization of the material. So I did appreciate that. Um, And then Possessor shot jumped up in this one again, Adam. Matthew Hanum doing the editing here, just cutting across time, space, and consciousness in Brandon Cronenberg's film. Uh, And then lastly, David Byrne's American Utopia. Adam Goff there just, you know, making what was a live concert experience, blending Spike Lee's different camera angles, bringing us different places Mm -hmm. at just the right moment. Uh, I think it's crucial to why that's such a thrilling experience, too. Now, see, maybe this is why you're such a much better critic than me. When you think about this category, you don't go into kind of binary modes and think about it in terms of the movies that seem the most complicated from an editing standpoint versus Mm. movies that maybe take a more simple approach. And you think about it in terms of these moments. But for me, you know, at some point I learned that the most acting doesn't equal the best acting. But I think I'm still guilty sometimes, at least (laughs) when I'm just kind of going through it, my instinct It's to favor the movies where there seems to be a higher degree of difficulty. Yeah. More cuts, that means more editing. That's more work, right? Well, so let's I've let's got, give those, I've got those editors an award. I think time falls into that category, probably. Yeah, yeah, it possibly does. But I then, being aware of that instinct, could discard it and say a movie like Tenant, the Christopher Nolan film that I was mixed on overall, really should be thrown out and not... <laughs> considered for this category except it might actually be the hardest movie to edit ever and that was my thought and then i found an interview with nolan where he said to indiewire that he was working for the first time with editor jennifer lame and he said it was a real pleasure i joked with her when she first came on that this might be the hardest movie any editor has ever had to cut and i'm not sure she would dispute that right now working out all the aspects of portraying time running in different directions meant going beyond what was down on the page as the execution lay with a successful translation of the visual. Now, Lame has been talked about here on the show before, and certainly her work has, because she did amazing editing on Marriage Story, and she's done other Noah Baumbach films. She's done Manchester by the Sea. She's done Hereditary. Clearly, hearing those titles, her creative instincts are so strong across, you know, tragic drama, horror, comedy, and action. And with a movie like Tenet, these huge set pieces and sequences that really are pretty stunning. But then you you compare that, as I was actually going through the titles and the ones that jumped out to me, Josh, as the quote-unquote best edited, it's the ones that really show restraint and deliberation and purpose in their cutting. And some of these movies have fewer cuts in maybe 10 minutes than some parts of Tenet literally probably have in 10 seconds, right? Like sure. The Assistant, First mm. Cow from Kelly Reichert, 
Eliza Hitman's never really sometimes always. And then we get to, you know, the rhythms of oppression and protest and mangrove and of freedom and dancing and lovers rock like you touched on. I also love the musicality of Armando Iannucci's The Personal History of David Copperfield. But then I kind of go back to where we started with Tenet and another film that moves back and forth in time. You also said this one already, the movie time, where the editing isn't just part of the form. It is the form. Yeah, <laughs> the, for the sure. work that Garrett Bradley and editor Gabriel Rhodes does. So for me, I hit on a lot of titles, but those five, Mangrove, Lover's Rock, David Copperfield, Tenet, and Time are the ones that I'm most strongly considering with Time right now, Josh, as the front runner. I will also throw out, as we think about what makes good editing, a movie that I don't know if you've had a chance to see yet, which is The Father, the film starring Anthony Hopkins, dealing with Alzheimer's and a difficult relationship with his daughter, Olivia Coleman, or more her difficult relationship with her father, trying to take care of him and, you know, deal with his struggle and deal with his, his stubbornness and the structure of the father. Besides Hopkins and Coleman's performance, the structure of it is probably the main reason to see it. And so it's very easy to think, well, that's really great editing. And it is, of course, very well-crafted. And I want to give credit to Yorgos Lamprinos as the editor of The Father. But it's so structured, Josh, that I don't know where the barrier between editor, cinematographer, director, screenwriter really break down. And you can assign credit, if you will, to Lamprinos because I'm just not sure where his decisions were made. And of course, I know I'm oversimplifying and he made a ton of them. And I could even point to certain scenes where clear decisions were made. But the overall structure of the film, which is really kind of a marvel in its own way, it seems to be so dictated by the structure of the material, probably on the page. And so I struggle a little bit with whether or not that that deserves the recognition here or not. Well, I think that points to something that's almost a variation on what you're talking about before. You can always look to the most editing, but sometimes you can always also fall victim to looking towards the most obvious editing. So it's like if you can clearly, and I think that can be a fault too, because my guess is that some of the most important decisions in this process that are made are the ones that where they said no. (laughs) <laughs> and they just, you know, maybe let things play or, mm-hmm. or chose not to do a scene, um, to construct a scene in a way that involved a lot of editing. I, actually, I think, you know, I really like your consideration of the assistant for that reason, because my sense mm-hmm. is there are a lot of a lot more quote unquote editing could have been done in that movie that would have absolutely punctured the claustrophobic bubble of it. So, yeah, this this is definitely it's one of my favorite categories, but also probably one of the trickiest, I'll admit. Okay, so maybe a good transition then into our fourth category here, another technical one, cinematography. I am going to give a lot of credit, maybe more than you, Josh, to Eric Messerschmidt on Mank in terms of that black and white imagery that we get. I love the work Christopher Blovell did on First Cow, a movie that was our consensus favorite of the year so far back in July. I think you have to look at a golden brick contender, The Vast of Night, Miguel Yoan Litton Menz. I hope I did justice to that. We 
gave a few minutes to that movie a few weeks ago. And in terms of the steady cam work, obviously that roving camera, but I think also just a lot of those still shots. We talked about, again, the choice there just to light a certain way, to evoke a mood and evoke tension out of holding a still shot. That's a combination editing and cinematography, obviously. And then another one I'm considering, Josh, is a movie shot mostly in 16 millimeter, but in reading a little bit about it, it turns out that it was shot on all sorts of different types of film stock and all kind of merged together in the final edit. So this is another one that should get some editing love, but it's the foreign language film Martin Aiden. Francesco Di Giacomo and Alessandro Abate are the cinematographers there. The just visual kind of lushness of that film, though I say lush and it's got a real gritty component and texture to it as well, is the thing I appreciated most about Martin Aiden. For me, though, they're all behind, I think, Josh. And this may be a first for me in terms of ever giving my top prize, if you will, for cinematography to a documentary. The movie The Truffle Hunters. Oh, totally. This is a movie shot by the directors, Gregory Kershaw and Michael Dweck. And right after the movie, I had to Google these guys to see what their background was. And you see that Dweck is a visual artist. He's both a photographer and a filmmaker. And of course, that immediately checked out after just taking in this film, which really is about Truffle hunters. I think the synopsis that you get in some places online is a little bit misleading and that they make it seem like it's a documentary that really is chronicling a competition as if there's going to be a winner and a loser in the end. And make no mistake, if you watch the film, you see how tough the competition is. This is truly some life or death stuff, but that's not that's not the structure of the film in any way, or really kind of the conceit of the film. It really is more about capturing these kind of tableaus of these characters and their lives. And I'm going to hold my thoughts on it a little bit for a future show, but why it's here for me, Josh, in terms of cinematography and why I do ultimately love the film so much, there's obviously the nonfiction element to it, but there's also an element of magical realism at play for me in the cinematography, in the look of the film, almost Herzogian ecstatic truth where you kind of find it in conversations and scenes that maybe aren't staged, maybe not even semi-staged, but they're certainly staged in terms of the meticulousness of the framing. I think I think posed is the word you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's about it's about the lighting, you know, it's about what's in the background. It's it's about the mise-en-scene, every shot, which is something you can't usually say about a lot of docs, or at least I don't think we say about a lot of documentaries. It's just really not about capturing a moment that's unfolding in front of you, however you can get it, which is what's the priority in a lot of docs. But it's about expressing that moment. And for me, it was the the best film of the year to look at, The Truffle Hunters. Truffle Hunters is gorgeous. And you're right to describe it as tableaus. It's a series of tableaus. What came to mind for me is it's as if these men, these hunters might be sitting for Rembrandt or sitting for Vermeer. That, that's the richness yep. of yep. the of the lighting and the depth, the darkness, how deep it is and how there's, I think of the two friends, they're sharing hunting memories. I think they're in a cellar or something. And, and so there's mostly deep darkness around them, the dankness you can sense, but then mm-hmm. there's this shaft of light coming in that illuminates, yes. you know, their reverie. And I, I think I totally get what you mean about magical realism in an image like that. But there's, there's some lighter ones too, like that 
really comical still life of the one hunter who's he's a really short guy and he's there's a, a table he's sitting at with a towering pile of fresh tomatoes that he's he's barely peering over and it's again beautifully right. composed but with a little humor to it um but the movie isn't just these tableaus though too it's also probably worth pointing out it opens with this this um kind of where's Waldo long shot of a forest we look at. Right. Um, it's a, all these freckled leaves and we see that someone's moving and oh yeah, there's a dog that they're hunting with moving. Um, and then as the camera closes in, we get a better shot of them. That's just a, you know, a beautiful landscape shot. That's a different sort of cinematography. Yes. So, so yeah, if For Truffle sure. Hunters doesn't get my, my top vote, it's only because Pedro Costas's Vitalina Varela is maybe the most visually entrancing film I saw all year. This is uh, the cinematographer here is Leonardo Simoes. Um, it's a portrait of an immigrant community in Portugal. And almost the whole film takes place at night where these immigrants are moving quietly. Like they don't want official society to notice their presence. And it's a similar use of, I think it's painterly as well as the truffle hunters is. Um, there's a similar use of deep darkness and then these, um, specific lighting sources here. Usually it's, it's clearly a natural source, but it has this extra power to it as it beams into these dim spaces and brings this, this sense of life into the frame as well. So those are the two that are definitely at the top of my list beyond that, uh, real quickly, um, cause I think we've mentioned these Christopher Blovelt, I'm with you, the work there that he does alongside Kelly Riker and first cow. I think this is another category you have to consider lovers rock Xavier Kirchner yep. doing the cinematography there. And then here's another one where possessor possessor uncut popped up. Karim Hussein brings these throbbing reds and blues, especially during the movies possession sequences. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, you know, Vitalina Varela and the truffle hunters. I, I, I did mm. not have any expectation I would be in for that visual lushness when I sat down to watch a documentary about truffle hunters. That's for sure. No, no, it was such a surprise. And you mentioning the reds and blues of possessor gives me an opportunity to mention a movie that's in the mix with 10 other titles. And I won't say all of them here that I strongly considered. And honestly, I could move into my top five. Probably lovers rock is in there. Mangrove is in there, but the movie I'm thinking specifically of is she dies tomorrow. Jay Keitel. Yes. In that psychological horror film the cinematography such a key part of evoking dread which is really the the dominant mood the dominant tone of that film directed by amy simons and yes there are many more i'll throw one last one in lucas zai for i'm thinking of ending things directed by charlie kaufman if we're going to talk about dread and how the camera helps evoke it i can't help but mention that film and if we intrigued you by the truffle hunters you will sadly probably have to wait unless you caught it somewhere on the festival circuit. I think March 5th is when it's slated to finally come out, but definitely one to keep an eye out for. We've just begun to dig into our critics' ballots. We're going to tackle more categories ahead and play an award-worthy round of Massacre Theater, I'm sure. If any CFCA members want to, you know, write us in, Adam, as candidates after hearing this, I'm sure, <laughs> sure we wouldn't mind. Stay with us. Won't you let me walk you? Okay. 
Another. I'll give you six ingots for that last one. I taste London in this game. Top five movie foods of 2020. Go, Josh. Oh, you, you know, um, I, I think that probably the small acts anthology, there's probably a food item in each installment that I could go for. Fair. If I'm remembering correctly. Fair. Yeah. yeah, though I was going to say that if First Cow's Oily Cakes aren't your number one, then... I think something is wrong with you. It's my number one right now. And yes, I do have a list that I have been sharing on Letterboxd or I've been updating from time to time. We'll see how it grows as we get through award season. Maybe we'll share my final top five at January's 2020 rap party. It was really completely impromptu. And it was spurred by the fact that I think I've mentioned it. The last two movies I saw before All this COVID stuff happened. The last two movies I saw in a theater, basically a day or two apart, were First Cow with the Oily Cakes and Birds of Prey, Harley Quinn, with I think Mm. it's Sal's Perfect Bacon, Egg, and Cheese Sandwich. And I said, okay, that's it. I've got two food items now back to back for movies that I desperately want to have in real life. And the list kind of just was born out of that, Josh. See, that's the savory option. The bacon, egg, that's and cheese. The savory. You know, if you, that's the, it. the sweet I'm imagining is the oily cakes. I will never forget. Yep. I think we mentioned this, the, the screening back when there were, you know, uh, critic screening still, Adam, for First yes. Cow was like, wasn't it at like 1130 or something like that? You mm-hmm. know, right over the lunch oh, hour. Yeah. <laughs> Lunchtime. <laughs> and then here are these delicious oily cakes. Somehow I yeah. still managed to appreciate the movie, even though I was I was hangry throughout. Remember when we could sit one seat apart in a little screening room, Josh? Oh, I, I think when we can do it again, Adam, we, we might want to hold hands. We might. <laughs> You're listening to Film Spotting. We'll get back into our favorite performances and more of 2020 in just a bit. But we do want to talk about next week's show. We're going to share, as we've done, I think since at least 2007, our top 10 films of 2020. It will be part one next week. We usually go long. There's enough to cover that we divide it into two shows. It is going to be a little different this year as we're alluding to the way our lives have changed at least in this context, as movie critics, Josh, not so important due to COVID. We aren't going to be able to convene our usual roundtable. It's an epic night. It takes a long time to record. It takes a lot out of us, but it's still always fun to get in the same room in a studio with you, with Michael Phillips, with Tasha Robinson, our producer, Golden Joe Dassault, will help out with that show on the production side and... We're not going to be able to do that this year. We're in different places. We're talking over Zoom. That doesn't mean we're not going to have them as part of the show. It'll just be a little bit different. Yeah, and this is a real loss. I mean, we've we've been able to manage fairly well, you and I, doing this remotely uh, and keeping a pace. But, man, did I always look forward to this gathering that we do. I think it was like maybe the second or third show I ever did. I was able to be a part of it after guesting once or twice. And that was when Scott Mm -hmm. Tobias was doing it alongside Michael. And it was such a blast. I mean, you know, maybe it's good though, Adam, I think we might've broken a record last year for recording time. I I mean, things, was it like pushing almost six hours or is that just my, yeah, I think think it was. So so (laughs) I think we were, were there past midnight. Things were getting, oh, we're usually past midnight. They were getting out of hand. Maybe in in some small way, it's good we're taking a breather uh, this year. Yeah. 
Okay, a little more streamlined, and we will, some will appreciate this. Some maybe liked our new structure. When we had so many voices in the mix for all 10 picks, going through 40 picks seemed a little unwieldy, even if there was overlap, and there always was overlap. So that kind of drove us to divide the show into outliers for part one, movies that kind of only showed up on maybe one of our lists each, and then the consensus picks where you got the movies that maybe were on not only two or three lists, but maybe all four lists, which has hardly happened in the history of this show. And that's because not only do you have Josh and your contrarian ways sometimes, mm. but you've got the queen oh, of yeah. contrary, yes. Tasha Robinson, who's going to make sure <laughs> she's going to mess with that uniformity. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so, she took that title away from me very easily. Yes, so we will not do the outliers and consensus approach. We will hear from Michael and Tasha a little bit more of a streamlined fashion. And you'll hear Josh and I go old school, count down 10 to 1. And so on that first show, you'll just hear 10 through 6. And then, of course, part 2, we'll get into the top 5. One way that you can get in on the fun is to vote in the current film spotting poll. We asked you to name your favorite film of 2020. We gave you six options. And as usual, we apparently did horribly because they are losing to the seventh option, which was other, where you can write in your pick for your favorite movie of the year. To be fair to us, Josh, Kelly Reichert's First Cow currently has a comfortable hold on the number two spot anyway. That that's fantastic. Not only because you know, spoiler alert, I'm going to have it somewhere on my list, but yeah. it tells me a lot of people were able to see First Cow. You know, a film that right. was kind of crushed by theaters closing there for a while. So, along with First Cow and other, we gave you these options in the poll: Palm Springs, the directing debut from Max Barbacow, that's on Hulu; Spike Lee's *De Five Bloods*, which is on Netflix, also on Netflix, and also an option: Charlie Kaufman's *I'm Thinking of*. Ending Things, Eliza Hittman's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. That's available for purchase, or you can see it on HBO Max. David Fincher's Mank, another Netflix option for you. And then in that other category, here are some of the write-in titles we've been seeing. David Byrne's American Utopia. Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7, Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, and a couple of Golden Brick finalists here, The Vast of Night and Sound of Metal. It looks like people have been catching up with this movie. I think just opened digitally on the 4th and a movie I highly recommended at that time. A Golden Brick contender, obviously another film as well you heard a little bit about in the first segment in terms of some of the best performances of the year. You can vote in that poll now at filmspotting.net. We will share the results and your comments during our top 10 of 2020, as we said. And of course, you can also share with us a voicemail or an audio file with your pick and your explanation for your pick. And we might just play it during the show along with some of our special guest contributors. That number is 312-264-0744. Or you can email us an audio file, feedback at filmspotting.net. This past week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they did The Shape of Nature, Part 1, Wolf Walkers, and John Sayles, The Secret of Rowan Inish. Now, we both expressed excitement last week over this pairing. And for me, it was just because I had seen many years ago and loved The Secret of Rowan Inish, knowing I needed to catch up with Wolfwalkers. And now that I've seen it, I'm even more eager, Josh, because that movie is really good. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this is an inspired pairing um, for sure. I'm glad you liked Wolfwalkers. Perhaps we'll get into that a little bit when we talk animated categories on our bonus show for Patreon subscribers. The next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, Genevieve Kosky. They post new episodes every Tuesday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. And there's more information at nextpictureshow.net. Now, Josh, you mentioned the Film Spotting family and some of the bonus content they get when they support us over on Patreon for $5 a month or for a discounted price. They can contribute annually and they get a free month. They get early show downloads, ad-free episodes, a merch discount, and they do get additional content every month. With all this awards talk, you mentioned it earlier, we may have to table our previously scheduled December content, hold that off until January and get into some of our bonus Chicago Film Critics Association award picks. We do have a lot of other categories we can touch on and a lot of other films to highlight. But in addition to all that, family members get to participate. They have the ability to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. They continue to be so much fun. Trivia Spotting 5 was last Friday as of this taping. We called it Subsequent Movie Film Trivia Game. And listen to this lineup of guests. Michael Phillips, Matt Singer from Screen Crush and Film Spotting SVU, formerly. Pop Culture Happy Hour's Glenn Weldon was a first-time player. Chris Klemek, a Pop Culture Happy Hour contributor, was back. Returning champ Griffin Newman from the Blank Check podcast was there. He brought his co-host, the Atlantic critic David Sims. He played for the first time. And thanks to a little help from Griffin, we got director Nia DaCosta. She made Little Woods, the Candyman remake that's coming out, and just the day before, I think, she appeared on Trivia Spotting. It was announced to the world that she's directing Captain Marvel 2. So she celebrated that announcement by playing trivia with us and some of our best friends over on Patreon. Yeah, very nice of her not to pull out after, you know... <laughs> announcing landing yeah. that gig she still played our little trivia game and she was great it was so good to have her be part of the fun not the winner though nia's team didn't win that was david sims the bad batch we had said adam that you know how how was anyone going to beat griffin newman uh, after yep. you know his display a previous well Here's how, here's how you beat him. You bring in his co-host, and right. they had a monumental standoff, a lightning round category that came down just to the two of them. Voiceover acting was the category, and I, I think that went for about 45 minutes, Adam. Is that, does that sound right, the two of them back and <laughs> forth? Maybe so. And, you know, my favorite comment, people were talking about it in the chat, and there was a listener, I think it was Ben E., who just wrote when that was finally done, I like sports now, <laughs> which it really did feel like that. Now, I can't believe I'm bringing this up, but I'm willing to be this humiliated, I guess. We as captains, as the VIPs, if you will, do the lightning round. We only have one lifeline, a listener from our respective teams. I got maybe three or four into that lightning round. It was about voice actors, like in animated movies. Our quiz master, Thomas Todd, would say the character. We had to say who the performer was that voiced it. And I just screwed up. I had one of those moments where I guess I was so excited to say the name Jeremy Irons that I thought we were talking about his character from The Lion King and mm -hmm. not James Earl Jones' character 
you really should never mix them up. It was terribly <laughs> embarrassing. And I was out and I thought, man, I'm going to deprive my team of a chance at, at maybe winning because we're not going to get this bonus point. And then I saw that, no, within one or two, I would have been out and nobody was going to take oh, a yeah. point away from David or Griffin. I didn't have a chance. No, you didn't. You were, I, I don't know, Adam, if if uh, you were a little quick on the trigger that night, I so would quick. say. You got caught a couple of times where- uh, I did. Uh, a little overly confident. So I, I'm sure you'll, you'll take that to heart yeah. for our next round. <laughs> a good lesson for me, Josh. <laughs> I, I learned something valuable from- trivia spotting and you can too in addition to learning more about random movie facts we want to highlight some new family members this week thank you to greg nordland bjorn vandervu Tyrion jones joanna hendon jackson slater molly k samuel jennings david greer scott harvey brendan clark cullen you know who you are lance Conzet, and dave coletta longtime listener and supporter thank you all for joining the family on patreon if you'd like to do that just go to patreon.com slash film spotting all right let's get to massacre theater the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt a few weeks ago adam and i massacred this scene it's good to see you sweetheart you contemptible pig i remain celibate for you I stood at the back of a cathedral, waiting in celibacy for you, with 300 friends and relatives in attendance. My uncle hired the best Romanian caterers in the state. To obtain the seven limousines for the wedding party, my father used up his last favors with Mad Pete Trollo. So for me, for my mother, my grandmother, my father, my uncle, and for the common good, I must now kill you and your brother. That was John Belushi and Carrie Fisher in 1980's The Blues Brothers, written by Dan Aykroyd and John Landis. Landis also directed. On that show, we reviewed Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which does come to Netflix this weekend, recommended by both of us and David Fincher's Mank. So why that scene from The Blues Brothers, Josh? Well, a trivia spotting player, Mitchell Beaupre. Beaupre, not nice job. Beaupre. I was wondering if Thank you'd you get that. I did learn something else about pronunciation from that trivia spotting event. He's in Newark, Delaware, and he says, well, if Adam hadn't given it away pretty easily with all of those many hints, I still think it'd be hard to forget Carrie Fisher's iconic moment there in Blues Brothers. You both did justice to the legacies of the dearly departed Fisher and Belushi. I'd have to agree with Adam that this was one of Josh's finest hours. Oh, thank as you. As far as connections go, yeah. The most obvious seems to be what a music-heavy episode this was between Sound of Metal and Ma Rainey's. We also heard from David Gratton. I'll agree with Adam. It was an excellent performance by Josh. Thank you, David. The begging was spot on with a hint of Alan Rickman's Don't Kill Me with his American accent as Bill Clay. Adam, you may have been fantastic, but I know Carrie Fisher's monologue so well that I could hear her. By the way, Die Hard is conspicuously absent from the Christmas movie Deathmatch. Yeah, we've been getting a little bit of that, David. Yeah, David's not wrong. Henrik Hansen in Maidstone, Kent, UK. You do my heart good. Your Blues Brothers performance was delightful. I miss John Belushi and Carrie Fisher. Such an excellent scene punctuated by Belushi removing his sunglasses for the one and only time in the movie to give that smoldering look just before he drops her in the mud. Definitely the fastest 
Henrik says, I've gone from action to knowing exactly where we were with that scene. He says, though, with the possible exception of the time we did The Princess Bride. Here's Dan Wright from St. Louis, Missouri. Incredible performances in this week's rendition of The Blues Brothers. I spent most of the performance questioning whether or not I could possibly be wrong since you said it was not included on your madness shortlist. Say it ain't so. (laughs) I know. Yeah, I had to include at least one comment taking us to task for leaving it off our proposed shortlist for Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s coming in the new year. Look forward to that. Though we do have Taylor Cole, I think he's here in Evanston, Josh, who is going to have our backs, even though I presume we're both decent fans of the Blues Brothers. He says, I just co-wrote a round of trivia about Carrie Fisher. So this Massacre Theater monologue was among the things I reviewed in my research. It comes from the Blues Brothers, of course, a movie that is aggressively fine Mm. and probably doesn't need to make a best of the 80s bracket. So there you go. Everybody take out all your frustration on Taylor Cole. I don't know if I can agree with that, Taylor. Aggressively fine. That that's sliding it a little bit. I don't I don't mess with the bracketing. I, I don't complain, Adam, but I I will say I think it should probably get a little more consideration. So whatever. Okay, that's we'll worth. see. The the committee will consider <laughs> yes, your yes. vote. I usually like to leave the committee to do its work. Here's Dirk Uh from Wellington, New Zealand. Well, you were right. This was about the easiest massacre theater you've ever had, even without the Chicago hints. As soon as the words, you contemptible pig, were uttered, it was clear to me that it was the Blues Brothers. I saw this film at the drive-in when I was in grade five in a double feature with Smokey and the Bandit 2. Those were the days. I think Smokey was the headline and the Blues Brothers was the support, but even to me, it was clear which was the better film. In fact, I was so taken with the film that I convinced my primary school teacher to rent it for my school's weekly movie watching <laughs> afternoon. It was then oh. that I discovered what I had failed to register the first time I watched the movie. It has a lot of swear words. And with each one, Ms. Duty shot me daggers. But we watched the whole thing. <laughs> my classmates learned a valuable lesson about the power of music to bring people together and solve social problems. I think that Dirk is making up Ms. Duty. <laughs> I was and thinking, I don't buy for a second. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> Too fitting. I don't believe for a second either that he forgot about those swear words and that he wasn't being deliberately subversive. Mm. That's that's the story I'm going to choose to believe, Josh. We did have a few listeners note that, of course, another tie in there, Belushi, sadly, gone too soon, just like Chadwick Boseman, the great star, giving a great performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. There was a fairly brimming film spotting hat. The performances must truly have been that good, at least from you, Josh. So reach in and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Scott Greenberg from Charlotte, North Carolina. Congratulations, Scott. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Come down. Oh, that's fellows dead. The play is over. Say what you have to say with speed and punch the audience out of their misery. We move on now to what inevitably will be a funny voices edition and bad acting edition, <laughs> as usual, required. of Massacre Theater. Hopefully the acting, the acting in air quotes and the voice work will be enough voice work also in air quotes. If not, we're probably giving you a fair number of clues, context clues there in the script. So maybe we'll see another brimming hat, Josh, just like. The Blues Brothers. All right. So who's going to be who, Adam? Because I think these are both pretty juicy. I I think it's fair to say you have more affection for the actor who begins the scene than I do. This is true. Especially recently. Mm -hmm. But 
I would still um, be willing to play that part. The other part, <laughs> you're going to have to, whoever does that part, there's like kind of an audio effect. I know. That I think I have an idea how to pull that off, but um, <sighs> I don't know. If you want that part as well. See, I see where you're going. If, if you want that part as That's the part you want, and that's the part I want. Okay, you take it. I'll go first. That's fine. Here's the thing, Josh, and I know it's called Massacre Theater, but I am not capable of doing the other part. Okay. I'm not. All right. <laughs> so you have to bail me out here. Let's do and it. And entertain our listeners. And I'm going to preemptively say this. I'm going to warn people that we are not doing a scene from any Star Wars movies. Your character is not Emperor Palpatine. I was just in my head. This is not a lie. Were you? Telling myself, don't do Palpatine. Don't do Palpatine. Well, so maybe thanks you a lot. should. If that's, if that's your way in, if that's your way in, go for it, Josh. Let's see what happens. Okay, you're going to start it and action. I need not impress upon you the trouble faced by the Western Hemisphere without your support in some fashion. I know, I know. You are on my mind day and night. Look, we could possibly... Mr. President? I I mean to say... We are facing uh, 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 the gravest odds. We could take your planes to about a mile from the Canadian border, and then if you send across a team of horses from Canada, nothing motorized, then you could pull them over the border yourself. How does that sound? Horses? You did say a team of horses? And scene. <laughs> the, sorry, the last word got away from me there a little bit. Well, otherwise, it I think was, mission accomplished, otherwise it was perfect. Josh, <laughs> it, it wasn't Emperor Palpatine. It was a highly constipated Emperor Palpatine. Mm, okay. Well, you know, variations. It's all about the variations, Adam. <laughs> yeah. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline, you've got a while for this one. We are going to save it. We're going to let you marinate on this performance. <laughs> you don't have to submit your entry until Monday, January 11th. Now, you used the audio technique I was going to do, but it, it didn't quite sound right. I, I think it's got to it be... It didn't? I, I, I was too worried about it being... Randomly oh, from see, all the correct see, you had it. And announced but in a couple is, of weeks. <laughs> this is what happens, Josh, when you don't rehearse at all. I was afraid that it would be too muffled. But you did it. Mm. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. Okay. Carrie Mulligan there in the trailer for Promising Young Woman, which is scheduled to come to theaters on Christmas Day. It's the feature directing debut of actress and writer Emerald Fennell. She's currently playing Camilla Parker Bowles on The Crown. Josh, have you been keeping up? Are you a fan? Oh, this is one of the strongest seasons yet. And that Camilla, Adam, she's a slippery one, I gotta say. <laughs> Oh, I bet. We get back into our conversation about the best of 2020 with the breakthrough filmmaker category. This one's very similar to our own 
beloved golden brick we give out here on the show, the award where we focus on movies that are from new or emerging filmmakers. So the emerging gives us a little bit of wiggle room, Josh, where it doesn't have to be a first time filmmaker. Maybe they've made a handful of movies, but they are all new to us. In this case, with the Chicago Film Critics Association ballot, and we're kind of talking through the nominees that we're going to put up in these categories, we are focused exclusively, explicitly on first-time filmmakers and Fennel with Promising Young Woman, definitely eligible, and one of the top five I'm considering, Josh, which movies and which filmmakers are you looking to put on your ballot? Yeah, you're definitely right about the Golden Brick. So just real quickly, the three nominees that I'm probably going to put on there, Garrett Bradley, Time, Andrew Patterson, Vast of Night, and then Bridget Savage-Cole and Daniel Crudy for Blow the Man Down. Beyond that, a film I've mentioned a couple of times is Relic, the first film from Natalie Erica James, who brings a sure sense of command to the horror genre with Relic. And I think I mentioned earlier, maybe the first time I talked about Relic, but Natalie Erica James had that you know, that fully formed ability that Ari Aster showed with his debut, Hereditary, with Relic. And then another one I'm thinking about in this category is something I've just recently caught up with, also in horror, because a lot of people have been recommending it, but it's a film called His House, and the director here making his feature directing debut is Remy Weeks. This basically follows a refugee couple from Sudan who make their way to England and are given government housing and encounter. It, there are some similarities to Relic, actually. What's haunting them is very different than what is haunting the house in Relic. But this is somewhat of a haunted house movie. It's, again, just taking a familiar genre and tweaking it in creative ways that Mark Remy Weeks has a talent to watch. So he's in the mix for me as well. His house might be one I just can't sneak in before I vote, but Relic is one that I'm going to make time for. I'm determined to make Good. time for, Josh. For me, like you, it's easy to consider the movies that are up for that Brick Award for us, or at least on the short list and... This gives me a chance to say shithouse, Cooper Rafe, thinking oh, about yeah. him for the Breakthrough Filmmaker Award. Live it up, Adam. Which we should also note is named the Milos Stilik Breakthrough Filmmaker Award in honor yes. of Milos, who recently passed away and was the founder of Facets, just an indispensable cinematic institution here in Chicago. So Cooper Rafe in the mix. Arthur Jones, the director of the documentary about Pepe the Frog, Feels Good Man, definitely timed the Garrett Bradley film. You mentioned The Vest of Night, Andrew Patterson. But for me, it comes down to Regina King for One Night in Miami. I talked in the first segment about Leslie Odom Jr., some of the performances. My affection for those performances holds over to the film as a whole. And we'll get into this maybe a little bit more when we talk our top 10 films of the year, but it's been a good year for movies adapted from stage plays for me. And I don't feel like these movies are trapped by that setting or the confines of that at all. And I think the editing, I think the cinematography, the overall direction of those performances and the blocking of those characters, mostly within one space, a hotel room is a big reason why. I think what I'm saying, Josh, is it would be easy to just look at this as an acting showcase and not think about the director's hand at work here. But I think that there are some elements where Regina King definitely deserves credit. She's got tough competition for me, though, with Darius Martyr 
and Sound of Metal, a movie we also talked about last segment. Paul Racy, that supporting actor performance, Riz Ahmed, probably going to get some attention from us as well as the lead. And I talked about it when I recommended this movie a few weeks ago, Josh, that effect that is a little bit challenging to watch as a viewer where you experience the world the way the main character Ruben does. And that is without being able to hear first starting to lose his hearing and then acclimating to life without being able to hear at all. How was it for you having just caught up with that film? Oh, it's incredibly strong. And I, I'm glad, I think because I did just catch up with it, I didn't have it on this list, honestly. Um, and I'm definitely adding it right now before I go ahead and vote because just an assured hand again, that, that's kind of what I, I'm looking for is a breakthrough filmmaker, someone where it doesn't feel like it's their first feature, you know? And I don't know if that's right. fair, but you can you can just sense the control that they have over their mm -hmm. material. And you definitely see that with Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal also, I always think that every year we've talked about our rap party categories, Adam, kind of the more idiosyncratic ones. We do best opening scene. And every year I almost want to do best closing scene. But of course we can't because we'd be spoiling the movies for many people uh, who haven't seen That's them right. yet. Sound of Metal. I mean... Wow, that ending. Yeah, if you are putting together a list of the best endings in cinema this year and you haven't seen both of the movies I just mentioned, One Night in Miami and Sound of Metal, then your list is definitely not complete. You need to do some more considering there. Let's get back to acting then, Josh. We're focused now on male leads. Who do you have? So he came up when I was talking about Mangrove in the supporting actor category, and it is Sean Parks, who has, again, I think the, I don't know if lead role or main character are the right terms, because this is very much an ensemble piece, but at the same time, the character of Frank Critchlow, the restaurant owner, he owns the Mangrove, is kind of what the story revolves around, even though it's not entirely about him. This performance completely knocked me out in, again, how the degree of difficulty that the way the film was made sets up for Sean Parks, because this is a character who he has a few moments as he and his restaurant and his uh, customers are being harassed by police where he loses his cool and he kind of lets mm -hmm. off steam. But other than that, he's a very quiet guy. He doesn't say much. He doesn't want to get involved any more than he has to. He just wants to run his restaurant. And so mm -hmm. what that means for Parks as an actor is that he's got to work mainly through these subtly shifting facial expressions. That's where we see the transition here within Frank that goes from annoyance at first to real anger to where he arrives at the end of the film where he's one of the Mangrove Nine put on trial to really activism. And we trace all of that, not in any, you know, speech that Parks gives as Frank Critchlow. It's an interior transformation that we completely experience through the acting nonetheless. And I think McQueen knows this because the film's climactic moment, basically the reading of all nine verdicts in the trial, as this does become a courtroom drama, McQueen dedicates the reading of those to a single shot of Sean Park's face, of Frank's reactions. Mm -hmm. we, we start there because his is the first verdict to be read, right? And you expect, okay, now we're going to cut to the next person as their verdict is read. And just what a choice and what respect for your actor to know that he's going to carry that by just holding his face for the entire time, almost the entire time, I should say. So mm -hmm. by far my favorite performance. That's why I spent so much so much time on it. I'll run quickly here through the other ones. We both talked about Jude Law in The Nest. 
I think I've come, I like the performance when we first reviewed the, the nest, the mm-hmm. more I've thought about, it, I like it even more. Just, you know, the cockiness, insecurity and low level panic law combines there. I was thinking about it the other day. It's almost as if Dickie, who he played in talented Mr. Ripley had survived, gone on to live this privileged life. Then one day the bill came due. That's, that's who we're watching <laughs> in when yeah. we see Jude Law in the nest. Uh, I mentioned Stephen Yun in Minari as the lead character, the husband to this wife, this Korean couple who moves to start their own family farm. And just a really tricky part here, trying to justify his dream, I think, of starting this farm by weaving it into care for his family. And there are ways that's true and difficult ways that's not true. And Yun is honest to all of those in what could have just been a purely inspirational part. Riz Ahmed, I know you're going to talk about Adam. He's on my list too, so I'll go back past him. Pretty sure you're going to talk about Chadwick Boseman from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, so I'll let you talk about him. And then I'm going to end with a question here. What should I do with Delroy Lindo? Because we huh. kind of touched on this in Five Bloods where there's a way you could say he gives both the best and the worst lead performance of the year because Mm -hmm. for me some of those over-the-top confrontations with his fellow veterans or the vietnamese on this trip in spike lee's film were just just way more than we needed but then we both talked about that single take reverse tracking shot his direct address Mm -hmm. monologue that is the heart of the film and is one of the most powerful pieces of acting i saw in the movies uh last year so i don't know what are where are you with lindo (laughs) if you thought about him for this category at all Well, I thought about him only because I do seem to be out of sync with a lot of people. You were at least one critic who talked about the performance in a way that at least suggested you were maybe a little bit mixed on it as opposed to just all in. I really did struggle when I think back on that review in terms of that performance kind of sucking all the air out of the movie and really taking away a lot of moments that I kind of wish could have been shared among that ensemble and some really fine actors there. But yeah, you're right. That monologue is such a great scene. And that's where we finally start to really understand who that character is in Delroy Lindo, a talented actor. So it all finally comes out there. I understand why you'd consider him, even if for me, I had to leave him on the outside. Bathe me in that lymphoma, Agent Orange herbicidal stew. Those army bastards, they scorched the earth with it, sprayed that in the air and the water, my bloodstream, my cells, my DNA, and my mother soul. But I ain't dying from that You will not kill Paul. You hear me? Hear me? Jude Law is one I definitely thought about. I just caught up with another round. The Thomas Vinterberg film, a Danish film about four four friends, middle-aged men. They're all in a rut. They're all teachers. And they decide to test this scientific theory that suggests if you maintain a certain level of drunkenness every day, your life will be better. I think this movie is going to be one that a lot of people probably shouldn't watch because it might be a little bit too tempting, at least if they only pay attention to, you know, the first half of the movie. But Nicholson is really good. It's always tough when you're playing a character who is from the moment you meet him defeated, 
at a low point in his life, doesn't even fully know he's at a low point, but has really become apathetic and boring, and everybody else around him knows it before he does. But how do you play that as an actor and not be boring or apathetic yourself? I think Mickelson pulls that off. How about another small axe movie that we haven't touched on yet, John Boyega? in red, white, Mm, and blue, playing a young man who becomes a police officer because he saw how his father was treated by the cops and wanted to do good, felt like he had a civic duty, and despite his own community thinking this is a terrible idea and essentially turning their backs on him, he goes through with it. And, I mean, of course, we've known since Attack the Block that Boyega was a talent, but this, this really seems like one of the best showcases Boyega's had yet, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Can can I say I think that's the best star performance of the year for whatever that's worth? It's just like he jumps off the screen in a movie that I think the movie overall is maybe the most conventional installment. And so uh, a star performance fits the best there. But yeah, he was maybe my favorite thing about that installment. Hmm. So those are three that are so good. This category that strong. They're not even really in the mix to get any points, Josh, because you've got Riz Ahmed. You've got Sean Parks who you mentioned from Mangrove. Incredible. I know this is one that's maybe unique to me. I do love John Majaro from First Cow. I think as we talk about technical, dazzling filmmaking, right, versus more subtle and restrained, well, Majaro's subtlety and his restraint is the hallmark of that performance, and I really think it deserves more recognition. But then you've got these, these fiery leads, along with Sean Parks from Mangrove. Like you said, it comes out in only certain instances. It's there in his face or or just behind the eyes, but you don't always see him express it. He's trying to keep it all back. And these two actors, I'm going to mention these two performances, Josh, there's subtlety to it, certainly, because they're very nuanced characters, but they are men who are extremely outspoken and wear their hearts on their sleeves. Kingsley Ben-Adair, One Night in Miami, as Malcolm X, a film that has those characters, those figures, as I mentioned, larger than life. And not to take anything away from Denzel Washington and the amazing performance he gave as Malcolm X in Spike Lee's film, but there is something in Ben Adir's performance that truly makes Malcolm X human to me in a way that I had never really felt before. Always saw him as this epic character, right? An epic figure who looms large in in any room he's in, on the American landscape, in terms of the civil rights movement, certainly. And yet when you get him in this space and you get him amongst these other figures, he becomes just a guy. He's still Malcolm X, to be sure, and that he can't hold back talking about the things that concern him with society. He can't hold back in terms of taking shots at his friends who are in the room, if he feels like they are coming up short and they're not supporting the cause the way he thinks they should. But there's a fragility to Malcolm X in Kingsley Benadier's performance that I guess took me by surprise a little bit, Josh. Yeah, I think weariness. There's a weariness to it. There are mm-hmm. playful moments, as you said, in the interaction with the other men, but you can sense the weight that he's carrying in a lot of those scenes as well, even though the context, as you said, that we get in Malcolm X with Denzel Washington, the Spike Lee film, we get so much of that context. You don't get a lot of that here because we're mostly in the mm-hmm. room, but the performance yeah. still carries it on his shoulders. Yeah, but is that enough to 
dethrone here Chadwick Boseman and the performance he gives in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I think because of the writing and we're talking about the source material, the play by August Wilson and the adaptation by Ruben Santiago Hudson, it would be hard to dismiss this character. He will defy you to dismiss him at any point. But in the hands of maybe a less skilled actor than Bozeman, I think he's someone that you could write off, at least initially, for his kind of bravado and the way he's always getting in the other characters' faces and the fact that he doesn't seem to take this recording seriously or only does insofar as he thinks it really should be a vehicle and a platform for him and his talents. But I think right from the beginning, there's an element in Bozeman's character that goes back to what you said with Kingsley Benadir and Malcolm X. There is a weariness. And then we get the full-on expression of that. But you know there's something running deeper under the surface of all that bravado. So I'm I'm wrestling a little bit between those two actors I mentioned and also Sean Parks from Mangrove. But right now, unless something crazy happens in the next 24 hours or so, Josh, I'm going to submit Bozeman as my number one pick. You know, you're always messing with somebody. Always agitate somebody with that old philosophy bullshit you be talking. You stay out of my way about what I do and say. I'm my own person. Just let me alone. All right, all right, Levy, you right. I apologize. Ain't none of my business. You spooked up by the white man. <laughs> all right, see, that's the shit I'm talking about. Y'all back up and leave Levy alone. Oh, come on, Levy. We was all just having fun. Toledo ain't said nothing about you. He ain't said about me. You just taking it all wrong. <laughs> ain't meant nothing by it, Levy. Levy got to be Levy. And you don't need nobody messing with him about the white man. You don't know nothing about me. You don't know, Levy. You don't know nothing about what kind of blood I got, what kind of heart I got beat here. It's nice for Bozeman's legacy that in this year, at least, I liked that we got such different performances from him. Because when you think about that supporting turn into Five Bloods, not a cameo, a little more than that, but Mm -hmm. definitely less than the other members of the ensemble. He's saintly, right? He's literally angelic (laughs) at one moment. And then we come all the way over here for this really devilish performance. That's not to say that Levy doesn't have, you know, admirable qualities and complications, but those two are kind of bookends for us to remember him by. Mm -hmm. That brings us to female lead. And I'm guessing Elizabeth Moss is going to get a lot of play on a lot of lists, maybe including yours. She's got both the invisible man and Shirley. I think to consider, I like invisible man more. I actually like that performance more. Julia Garner from the assistant Anya Taylor-Joy, so good in The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, also very good in Emma earlier in the year. But I'm not sure any one of those three can overtake these names for me, Josh. Viola Davis as Ma Rainey in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman, and Jesse Buckley in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, that Charlie Kaufman movie. I'll go back to that word that they use a couple times in the movie. I think it's interiority. There is, by just nature of the role, such an interiority to it. But what I mean is, it's all kind of happening inside her head. We're mostly hearing what she's thinking. And even when she's expressing herself, it's not as if she's a bombastic character. It's very withdrawn. It's all about what is happening within, and Buckley makes that dynamic. That's a similar Description you could apply maybe to Sidney Flanagan in Eliza Hittman's Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. We've talked about this quite a bit 
whenever this movie comes up, she's a character who is literally afraid, it seems, most of the time to express herself, to show vulnerability. No matter what she does, whether it's at home, it's at work, at school, there's that sense of dread. There's that sense that something terrible could happen to her. And then when her and her friend head off to New York and seek an abortion, you are terrified for her the moment she hits the streets. And of course, we've also talked a lot about that one key scene where the camera is just trained on her the entire time. One of the scenes of the year, one of the performances of the year for me, Sydney Flanagan. But I'm not sure it's enough to overtake Carrie Coon from The Nest. And I think all I'll say, Josh, here is two of the best scenes of the year involving an actress are basically all hers. One of them is the dinner scene where she's smoking the cigarette opposite mm-hmm. her husband, Jude Law, right? And then guzzles the champagne the way she does and just gives it back to him in a way that shows she is not going to be put in any kind of box. She is not going to be defined as a quote-unquote trophy wife and that she's really the one in control here. And yet there's also this dynamic between them that's, a little bit sensual, a little bit like she's not just trying to emasculate him, but he kind of enjoys it too. And actually Sean Dirk and the the director gets into this a little bit along with Carrie Coon in a Q&A they did with our friend Allison Wilmore for Vulture, where they just dive into that scene and how they approached it. But that's amazing. And then we get this wonderful dance scene with her, this drunken revelry where we just get to watch Carrie Coon let loose on the dance floor and It's as if she's taking all of her bitter feelings towards her husband, all the phoniness she sees in him, all the parts of her life that she's constantly questioning and the choices she's made and just sets them all aside, lets them all out there in those few minutes on the dance floor. So with those scenes in mind, Carrie Coon kind of jumped to the top for me. Where is she for you? It's Carrie Coon. I mean, this she just... (laughs) You know, halfway through the nest, she just grabbed this award and hasn't let go. Um, this honor, I should say. I'll I'll throw a third scene at you. How about that gradual close-up at the dinner party where her husband, Jude Law, is is kind of like at his smarmy best for himself. Yeah. And right. it's the first time the scales are falling from her eyes as to what that means for them as yeah. as a married couple. And again, it's just all it's just all in a close-up. I saw some deposits you made. It's nowhere near what you're spending. It's taking time. It takes time. It's coming. Here's the next payment. It's the one. All right. Well, if you have all this money coming in 10 days, then you can buy me dinner and we can order whatever we want. Of course. Of course. Are you ready to order, sir? Yeah, I think so. We'll start with a dozen oysters and the shrimp cocktail. My princess will have the Chateaubriand, and I'll do the whole roasted sea bass. Let's start with a bottle of white, and then we'll have red with our dinner, whatever you think goes best with our food. Don't look at him. I've told you what we wanted. Thank you. She was the most fun actor to watch on screen this year. It's just a delicious part that she gobbles up. And that's not to say it's always fun what's happening to her character necessarily, but the way she digs into it. So I'm also with you on Viola Davis. I'm also with you on Sidney Flanagan. For me, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is a very good film with a great scene that only works because of her or, or needs yeah. her to work as well as it does, I should say. Right. Also with you on uh, with Julia Garner in The Assistant, Elizabeth Moss, The Invisible Man is the great Elizabeth Moss performance we got this year. The one that is probably going to be higher up 
then some of those on my list is a non-professional performance. And I'm going to go back to Vitalina Varela again, the Pedro Costas film. She actually shares a screenplay credit with him. So this is, you know, I'm thinking again of Nomadland, Chloe Zhao's method of working. This is a a woman who, um, she's playing a woman who, after many years, follows her immigrant husband from the island of Cape Verde to Portugal. And she ends up arriving there a few days after his death. We talked about the cinematography in this, and a lot of this is Vitalina Varela posing in these rich painterly compositions. But as the movie goes on later on, we get these moving monologues where she begins to speak to her late husband. And that just op- that's where it becomes more of a, an actual, what we think of as a performance, I should say. Her inner life gets opened up. We, it allows us in, and um, it really becomes also a story. This is a social document, but it's also a, an intimate story about this strained relationship between a husband and a wife. And it's going to need a real performance. Uh, to pull that off. And so I think Vitalina Varela does that in uh, in the movie named after her. Really quickly, two names I want to throw out. I don't think three names that, um, you know, I'll probably put in my ballot, but are worth mentioning. I think Margot Robbie is great in Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. Kristen Milioti was a revelation to me, wasn't familiar with her in Palm Springs, and she's just so smart and funny. And mm-hmm. I think, Adam, I saw you caught up with Yes, God, Yes, this sort of satire of a Christian youth retreat. Well, it's mm-hmm. all anchored around Natalia Dyer from Stranger Things. It really is. And man, does she pull this off. I mean, I liked her in Stranger yeah. Things, you know, thought she was she was good, but this is kind of like a whole nother level of um she gets a chance to, you know, she's the star, but it's a whole no, a whole nother level of um interiority and comic timing and just kind of taking us through this this kind of crazy world. So so mm-hmm. I thought she's worth highlighting among the performances of this year. Yeah, I haven't written anything or said anything about that film, which overall I liked. There are six to eight instances at least where characters do or say things that no human being in that situation would ever do, right? Which which even in a comedy, I think the yeah. I mean, it's contrivances a comedy, there are maybe, yeah, yeah. are maybe an issue for me, but it really is all anchored on Dyer's performance. So I like that you called her out here. That brings us to our final category. We've talked about our favorite supporting performers of the year, our favorite lead performers. Probably going to be some crossover here as we talk then about most promising performers, just like breakthrough filmmakers. These are actors or actresses who are either making their debuts or at least having a breakout role. Josh, do you have any names? Let's start with this question. Any names that haven't come up yet? that you want to highlight here under most promising? Yeah, I'm going to, I've got three names and two of them are new. Uh, the one you can probably guess that isn't new, Sydney Flanagan, never, rarely, sometimes, always. This is pretty much, you know, her, her award to, to lose for me. But I also think it's worth considering Lovey Simone from Sella and the Spades, a golden brick nominee playing this sort of meanish girl. I think you could say it an elite boarding school. She's got a lot of humor, fire, heart to that part. And then, Maybe you can help me with this, Adam. I, you know, I bragged about how I start this massive document and, and add notes to it all throughout the year. All I had under breakthrough performance or promising performer was Una Roche, the nest. And I didn't write anything else down about her, but she basically plays <laughs> Carrie Coon's character's teen daughter from a previous yeah. relationship. And there must have been something in, in addition to those two lead roles that jumped out to me about Una Roche. Can you remind me what that might have been? 
Well, I I can very vividly remember a couple of tell-off scenes where she's she's just not having it anymore with her mom. And they do kind of stand out in terms of the level of disdain that she expresses there. So I'm not I'm not shocked that you jotted that one down, Josh. Okay. Well, that's the list for me. But like I said, Sydney Flanagan, um, yeah, this is pretty much hers. Yeah. So for me, it's Flanagan versus Kingsley Benadere as Malcolm X in One Night in Miami. Other names I've mentioned, Amara Jai St. Aubin, Lover's Rock, Michael Ward, Lover's Rock, Orion Lee, First Cow, Talia Ryder, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. The other two names, I really do like Eli Gorey's performance in One Night in Miami as Muhammad Ali. It's kind of crazy to me, actually, Josh, that there became a point where I was not aware at all of him portraying Muhammad Ali. I bought it. I suspended disbelief. It's one of those voices you know, you think about the Michael Mann film, Ali, always aware it's Will Smith putting on a voice. And you've heard so many people imitate Muhammad Ali. This felt as natural and authentic a performance as Ali that I can imagine an actor giving. So I really like Eli Gorey. So I don't know what it was about that performance, but I kept hearing, and this will probably only mean something to people who watch um, TNT's NBA show. Every once in a while, I would I would hear Charles Barkley. Barkley. Like that. Now, it may very well be that Barkley has modeled his public persona after Ali, right? That would make sense because you, you kind of get a sense like Barkley thinks about himself that way. But yeah, it, that was a very entertaining performance. I did get shades of Charles Barkley for our, for whatever reason here or there. <laughs> okay. I wasn't distracted by that, but I also don't watch the NBA on TNT nearly as much as you do. The last one I'll mention, what do you think about Sierra McCormick in The Vast of Night? There's something about her performance and something yeah. about everything involving her that just seems almost anachronistic. Like, don't get me wrong. She's wearing the right glasses. She's wearing the right hairdo. She's wearing the right outfit with the skirt that sets this back in the 1950s. And yet it's almost as if a 2020 sensibility was yeah. was captured in her and thrown back into the 50s. And I really like that. I really like yeah. that it's somehow I, I, I can't really articulate it, but it feels almost a little bit subversive. There's something about that performance. I think that's right. I think that's what the film is kind of going for overall. It's not period authenticity, but it is, after all, you know, it begins by taking us into a Twilight Zone-ish show. So we're actually yeah. watching an episode here. So it's it's kind of like a performance of a performance in a lot of ways. And mm -hmm. I think you could say the same of Jake Horowitz, who also has the co-lead there. Um, it's a very rapid back and forth kind of Sorkin-esque way of dialogue delivery that they're going for in this movie as well. So, yeah, I think I think they're both, you know, worth considering in terms of just, you know, someone who kind of jumped out at you from the screen this year performance-wise. Mm -hmm. You can find all of our picks for supporting and lead performances, editing, cinematography, and more over at filmspotting.net slash list. And, of course, you can see... How the rest of the Chicago Film Critics Association feels when the final winners are announced that will happen on Monday, December 21st, chicagofilmcritics.org to learn more and to see those results. Josh, that's the result of our show. We're done. We're done. Ready to submit our ballots. Listeners can't 
influence us anymore, but we'd still like to hear what picks you made. So you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and share your favorite performances and more from 2020. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And that's also where you want to head to vote in the current Film Spotting poll. What is the best film of 2020? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, Education, the fifth and final chapter in Steve McQueen's Small Axe series. Josh, you've seen all five. I have two to catch up with. Where does Education rank? I know you recommend all of them. Where do you put it? Yeah, I do recommend all of them. Oh, good question, because I actually did a, a Steve McQueen ranked on Letterboxd uh, and included these all separately. I think it's probably my ranked fourth among the five. No, I think it's third. And at any rate, it's good. You should watch it. It actually See makes it. a really yeah. You should you should watch it. It actually makes a um, really interesting bookend and kind of ties a bow around what the larger project of Small Axe might be. I'll say that for it. Okay. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, aforementioned in this show and reviewed a couple weeks back here on Film Spotting, out finally on Netflix. See that one as well if you can. In limited release, another round is opening. Not sure how you can see that one, but directed by Thomas Vinterberg, Really good performance by Mads Mikkelsen and one of my favorite foreign language films of the year. Next week here on the show, we will share our top 10 films of 2020. It's part one. Michael Phillips from the Tribune, Tasha Robinson from the next picture show will drop in and we'll share our 10 through six picks. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Bedween. More information at bedween.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.